but knowing who said it, I know what she meant. So that was. Let me take this. I was supposed to start. I'm grateful to be with all of you here today. I enjoy listening, and my goodness, Lori, we could have stopped with your testimony this morning. It was true and beautiful. Any of you who have walked through the Shadowy Valley of any kind of um, surgery know what it is, especially with your loved one. And I have not seen that again with my husband. That's another story for another day. When Sherry uh, called me to invite me today, I asked her, is there a theme of the summer? Is there a specific topic that you want me to talk about when I come? And she said, well, you might talk about people from, um, about aging. And I thought, well, now there's a subject I know about firsthand. She also talked about the possibility of whether or not uh, you wanted to talk about caregiving of elderly parents. And I thought, yes, I could know about that. Finally, she said, I really don't care what you talk about, but in her, not in her words, but in my words, I heard her say, it should revolve around the love affair you've had with Jesus. And that made me smile, because while Jesus and I have had a lifelong relationship, I have to tell you, Jesus has been the better, stronger partner. It's really a wonder that he has stuck around. In fact, if this had been a human marriage, I think we would have spent most of our time in counseling, in a lawyer's <laughs> office, maybe even the divorce court, I'm not sure. Because you see, I tend to have a bungee cord type of relationship with Jesus. Now, you know about bungee cords and those daredevils that jump off the bridge and then they get down almost to the water and then they're back up again to safety. Well. I tend to jump off of one situation and thinking all the time that I am the smartest one, I have the greatest intelligence, I can handle life no matter what, only to find that when I get to the end of the bungee cord, I find myself thrown into the air, flailing around and tossed at the feet of Jesus, bruised, defeated, guilty, and oh yes, very embarrassed. But like my mother long ago, Jesus bandages, heals, sings, admonishes, and holds me into wholeness. Only to see me fly off again in another situation, thinking I'm the one that's in control and I'm the one that's the boss. And the hard thing is, there's no room for maturity of faith, there's no room for gratitude. Most of all, there's no possibility for me to receive or to hold within me the power of the Holy Spirit. There aren't any excuses, of course. I was raised in a Christian church-going family who believed. In fact, Mother shunned all social graces with all three of her children by taking us before we were two months old to the balcony of the church where she nursed us in public and then paid attention while the preacher was talking. From that moment on, there was never an excuse for us not to be in church, a chance to serve in tasks of the church, which mother and dad and several of us did. My maternal grandparents rode to church with us on Sunday morning, all seven of us, 
crammed into a sedan. My grandfather, like my grandmother, taught Sunday school for 50 years. All, both classes were all women. So on the way to church, my grandfather taught his lesson to us in the car. On the way home, he re-preached the sermon to us and finished with a flourish around the Sunday dinner table. We were grounded in the word even if that interpretation was by a West Virginia would-be preacher and railroad man. I was nine when I was sitting in church in that same church on a very hot Sunday kind of dozing when I looked up and saw the pastor and interposed myself behind the pulpit, wondered what that vision was. I was 16 when I went to the altar at a youth rally and gave my life to Christ. That is at least what I understood what giving one's life to Christ was at 16. When I went home, I said to mom, what's this about? She said, I think you need to go and talk to the preacher. So Dr. Roy McCuskey and I met. And he said to me, I think that you should point your direction toward being a missionary. We can get you into the deepest, darkest part of Africa if you want to go. <laughs> but don't ever think that you can be a pastor in a church because the church does not allow women to talk in church. Now, Africa seemed like an awfully long way off. So instead, I graduated high school, went to Ohio University, graduated there, met my husband, Larry, went home to teach school. Then I got married and began a family. Larry and I each taught a Sunday school class in the early years of our marriage. We baptized our two sons, we only have two, um, and took them every Sunday to church. We had to pull the hat down over Stephen's eyes because the minute he saw the church, he screamed. And since we were always late to church, we didn't want them announcing the Lusaders were coming late again. <laughs> then we moved along in Larry's career. Occasionally I would question God about what should be next, but got no clear answers. Perhaps because having asked, I was content to be immersed in my daily life and a little bit afraid of what God would really require of me should I ask clearly. In a short time, uh, at 32, I was at a lay witness mission weekend where I once again found myself at the altar giving my heart to Christ. Again, not sure what all that meant. But an answer seemed to appear quickly. I was asked to be the Christian director of education in our church, which was a dream job. It melded together my higher education and my faith walk. I was thrilled with the job. It just pleased me to be able to do this, even though the salary was a mere $3,000 a year. And on the outside, our lives seemed perfect. Behind the scenes, life wasn't quite so easy. My husband was now a traveling salesman. Do any of you have traveling salesmen for husbands? Oh, okay. Yeah, you understand. He would leave on Sunday night and he would come home on Friday or Saturday 
or whenever the snow stopped and the roads were clear for him to make it home. The money was great, but I put down roots. I put roots down really, really deep. And all at once, marriage required of the entire family to leave all that that was familiar and precious to us, away from the part-time working mom who loved her job, to become the entertainment person for those people that would show up unexpectedly with traveling husband for an evening of home cooking, or at the whim of a company would pick us up and move us to a new city, leaving me there as a single parent dealing with disgruntled children, one of whom decided that the way to handle that was to immerse himself in alcohol. New schools, new doctors, new churches, new friends, and just when we were getting ready to settle in and think now we know and understand our lives, the moving van appeared with the traveling salesman husband, and it was to begin all over again. There were days of such despondency that I believed that our marriage would never, ever survive. And faith? Well, you're probably thinking a woman who has been called by God, who has answered the call of God, should take this in stride. That's what they think of us Christian women, isn't it? But in truth, I felt very much alone. And what I found was that the bungee cord allowed me to leap off the bridges, but never to bring me back to any safe harbor that I understood. When one of the moves brought us to Cincinnati, my aging parents in Florida all at once became very needy. And as the oldest child, I drove to Florida, packed them up, and brought them home. But home was a different place by that time. It was home to a husband whose job had changed, whose salary had been reduced, whose company car had been removed, and to a house that we had bought because I liked it but we couldn't afford it kind of thing. And he was home every day, for a short time anyway, while the company decided what they were going to do. Now you see, we hadn't lived together for years. I mean, he came home on weekends, but that was always a switching of power back and forth. But it wasn't really a sharing at all of our marriage. It was so easy for him to blame me for our son's immersion into alcohol because I wasn't a strong enough mother. And it was easy for me to blame his absences as the reason for the situation. Our other son, who we had moved this time in the middle of his freshman year in high school, after having spent all the years since he was five years old in the other school, um, announced with great frustration and anger at dinner with tears as well, you have ripped my life in half. I don't know if I'm going to survive. Dad had come with a multitude of several strokes, a heart condition, and of course his aging issues. And mother, who had cared for him so well in Florida, now had brought him to me with all of his 
situations and all of the care that goes along with keeping a house and a family, and she handed it all over to me. I was pushed into finding a way to um, incorporate some cash into our sagging economy at home, so I ended up as a temp at Procter & Gamble across town at 40 hours a week. So I got up at four in the morning and I put supper in the crock pot, did several loads of laundry, the boys were out the door to their responsibilities, and me, I was off to work across town. Back at five to finish the laundry, oversee the boys' needs, fix supper, do the dishes, clean up, and then because mother and dad hadn't seen me all day, they asked me to spend the evening with them. And Larry found his way upstairs to the TV in the study to watch sports, and the teenagers went to the basement to do what teenage boys do, and so we lived. And yes, every Sunday we went to church, all six of us, we had Sunday dinner and seemed to the neighborhood and to the other people in our church to be the most wonderful, fine, upstanding Christian family. When there were more tears shed in that house than you could ever imagine. Have any of you been caught in the sandwich generation? Some of you have. Well, you've probably found out some of the truths that I did. The first one is, a woman tries to be all things to all people. Have you ever found that to be true? We are to be peacemakers. We are to be the gentle spirit in the house, never raising our voices, never being upset, always able to see a brighter horizon. We are to be the spiritual guide. We are to be wife, mother, daughter, and perhaps one of the worst places to be, a sibling in the midst of it. And the second thing I learned was this. Most days, if not all days, that same woman fails some part of the equation. If dinner got to the table on time, the laundry was screaming from overload, or the school open house was missing from the calendar, and therefore I was missing from the open house. But most importantly, the focus fell from making certain that I was spiritually sound. I wasn't reading the Bible anymore. I wasn't praying like I should. It seemed like the days just took and zapped all my energy and, and absorbed anything that was spiritual. And then I became a person that loved pity parties. Poor, poor Anne. I picked up the Bible one morning thinking, it's time I got back to reading, and there was Paul. I think when women are in trouble, Paul shouldn't be the very first person that you read in the morning. <laughs> and in uh, Philippians, he said, don't be anxious about anything. But with prayer and thanksgiving, make your request to God, and the peace of God which passes all understanding will keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Right, Paul. Come and live my life. 
see, I gave my life to Jesus. Why wasn't, why weren't things turning out the way I thought they should? How do I find this peace that passes understanding? But God was working, and I have found many things and truths about God, but one of those is that God likes to send human agents to walk with you. Maybe they're street angels, I don't know, but whatever, they walk with you. The new church we had found had a woman pastor. Praise the Lord. The church saw some, uh, some value nowadays in letting women talk in church, and what a woman she was. Now you have to know that I was raised that women who painted their faces, their nails, pierced their ears, wore bright colors, and heaven forbid, colored or streaked their hair, were pagan. <laughs> and there she was. Blonde highlights, <laughs> lovely makeup, painted nails, finger and toe, dangling pierced earrings. I whispered to Larry during the service, I don't think I can stay here, you know? I don't think I can stand to look at her and listen to her. And he, with all the wisdom that he has shown through the years, said, Ah, but did you hear her pray? I did listen, and all at once I could hear God speaking through her to not only me but to others if they would but listen, and it was wonderful. In the months that followed, she helped me understand that my parents would be happier back in Florida with their friends if I got them into a safe environment. So we worked very hard at that and took them back home, and they were thrilled to be back where it wasn't cold, they didn't have teenagers out all night. They didn't have meals anywhere from 4 in the afternoon to 12.30 in the morning. They were delighted to have their lives back. She walked me through the new call to ministry on December 24, 1985. Helped me discern what that might mean for my life and my family's. She drove me to seminary with tears running down my face. I'm old. I shouldn't be going to school. All I will come up with is rust. And then she stayed with me when I was tempted to quit because during those four years in seminary, some pretty drastic things happened, and I was listening to Laura and thinking of the same thing. I had barely begun when my father died. In a year or so, my 46-year-old brother died unexpectedly, and six months later, Larry was left along the side of the road in full arrest in Louisville, Kentucky. My in-laws died. My marriage was just in shreds. The long years of our son's worldly trek through the courts and the lawyers and counseling had left us sad and broke all while I was driving up the road every day to Dayton to seminary, coming home and going downtown to the inner city where I was pastoring a church. My friend was always leading me back to the roots again when I was saying to her, you know, I think that I overheard God speaking to someone else 
and I thought the call was for me. And she said, and that's not true. These things are things that happen and then Satan enters your mind and tells you, you shouldn't believe and you should turn back because it'll be a real coup for Satan if you should walk away from the ministry now. Then when I knelt to take the authority of the church in ordination, she drove to Wisconsin, lay hands on me and placed the yoke of the Lord, which is the stole we wear on Sundays around my shoulders with a hug and tears. She is still a precious friend, thank God. The family was healing and we were back in church full time. Life had meaning again, but the peace and the gratitude that I thought came with faith were not lasting gifts. They kind of came and went, just as I did in my understandings. It was then that I reread the words in Philippians 4 about the peace that passes understanding. The words read a million times before leaked out of me, and these were what they said. The Lord is at hand. Keep your hearts and your minds in Jesus Christ. Focus. Focus. You're probably laughing and saying, well, of course, that's not new. That's silly to even think it was. This is the essence of faith. Ah, yes, faith. What was new was that I realized that I was a great church Christian. I went all the time. When you're pastor, it's good to do that. <laughs> I served. I gave my 10% and more. I prayed dutifully. I preached. I taught. I married. I buried. But that relationship, that elusive relationship, deep and personal, which has so little to do with the church building and even the needs inside and out was the missing key. And all the times I had been to the altar and all the time I had studied and all the time I knelt and took the authority of the church, that relationship had never been sealed. Does that mean my time is up? <laughs> I had given my heart, but I had not given up myself. I, Anne Lucader, was still in control. From those words of Paul, I realized I wanted Jesus, but I wanted control. I could never be an Abraham leaving to go off to form a new nation. I could never be a Moses at, in their senior year to try to go out to free people. I wouldn't be like the disciples who had left their homes and their jobs and all of that to follow Jesus. From those words of Paul to the Philippians, I realized I had to go once more to my knees. And I said to God, here I am, broken, sinful, a believer, but not a true follower of the faith. I give myself to you this hour. Use me as you will.
Oh, it's taken time. I'm a stubborn lady. But faith has come with the peace, with the relinquishing of control, with the trust that whatever comes, the Lord is at hand. There is the wisdom given when we let go and let God. It allows the eyes to move to the horizon, not to be caught with all of the stuff that we take into ourselves at the six o'clock news or overwhelmed by the crises that come in our personal lives, which they do as Lori shared this morning. We need to be able to focus on Jesus at the very moment all those things happen. I need to tell you that one of the things I found is that when we have a new learning, God confirms it with an experience. I hope you'll remember that. And the confirmation came for me, and Beth Lockwood is here, and Beth went with us, to um, Jamaica in March. There were nine of us seasoned missionaries that went to build a house. Four of us were 70 to 78 years of age, Two of us, and I, Beth, I don't know your age, but I think you were past retirement age somewhere, she and Bob. And then there were three that were 53, 54. But we built a house in two and a half days. Yes, it was wonderful. Now, it wasn't a great house. It was a house that would have no plumbing or electricity and no insulation but it would have four walls, a roof, two doors, four windows with slats. We built the house for Lucy and Ricky Walker who were living in a house that had been built some 60 years before and wasn't well built then. It had been damaged by hurricanes, held upright by poles that were bracing the roof. So if you bumped the poles, the whole house would shake and it looked like the roof was closing in. Ricky had Parkinson's and was on disability. The floor of their existing house was filled with holes that had to be navigated so as not to fall to the ground. The house was built on stilts so that if they fell to the ground, it was quite a fall. They sat on their porch, which was a piece of concrete, usually on a bucket, and wearing very simple clothing. They visited an outhouse had chickens running loose, a dog, and two goats, one of whom died while we were there. At the end of our time, we realized we had 700 extra dollars and we could put electricity in their house the first time that they had lived with electricity. Can you imagine? Their only source of income was when Lucy would go to market in Ocho Rios, a 90-minute multiple bus drive where she was laden with all of the things that she took to sell. While she was there, she would sleep on a cot in the market, in the stall, until all of her wares were sold. But in between, Lucy came every day to teach us that all around her, growing wild, were the, place, the gifts and the wonder that God had given to them. There were coconut trees, and the coconut gave them milk and a type of candy. They had bananas that would ripen on the porch of their house. There was a chocolate plant that she would take 
the, the seeds out of, she would dry them and then she would pound them until the oil came out and it be, could be made into a flexible ball that she would make like this and take to, to market and that would be flaked off for their chocolate tea or for anything else. She also um, had <coughs> nutmeg and cinnamon that she showed us about that was growing wild and she made something out of it. The best trips that she would make that year would be, the, uh, the money would be a, the equivalent of about $150 American. But she could only go once or twice a year because she couldn't leave Ricky that long. In their minds, they were not poor because they were richly blessed by God, hour by hour. In their poverty of things, they stood king and queen of faith, of trust, of love, of gratitude. What's more, the mission folk of some opulence, at least we had running water, at least we had electricity, that came from Anderson Hills, were changed forever. The walkers in Jamaica taught us the truth of gratitude, to stand in the midst of God's world and to see his hand everywhere. And whether all we want is just beyond our reach, all we need is there close by. Should we be willing to kneel, to give thanks, to offer our lives, to open our eyes and our ears, to be willing to work, and to believe. Our marriage, as Joyce said, is now 53 years old. One son is in the preparation for ministry. The, that's the one whose life was ripped in half. The other one who walked in the world is married, the father of the triplets, teaching Sunday school. And this pastor finally has found the meaning of faith and a grateful heart by letting go and letting God. I'd like to read to you this one scripture. It comes to us out of Philippians 4, 4 through 7. Rejoice in the word, Lord, always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let all know your forbearance. The Lord is at hand. Have no anxiety about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus, where faith abides. I'm going to lead us in prayer, and I'm going to have a sentence to begin, and then I'll stop. And if you would like to say the rest of the prayer with me, I'll stop after a few words, and you can say with me in your heart, out loud, or just listen. Let us pray. Eternal God, we are women who often struggle in our earthly roles, yet we do love you. Hear us as we pray now you can follow along. Open our minds, 
our hearts and souls to your Holy Spirit. Erase the past. Open the future by receiving us this hour. We ask forgiveness for anything we have done that is grievous unto you. Replace the anxieties, the fears, and the guilt with your peace and grace so that when we leave this place, we will be forever women of faith and trust. In your name we pray. Amen. If you have prayed this prayer along with me for the first time, or if you have never prayed a prayer like that and would like to know more about it, I understand that we have books here that if you come up afterwards, I'll be glad to give to you. Andy Stanley is a fine author and someone who has good words to say, and many of your questions will be asked, answered. And if not that, they'll at least spur you to find someone that will sit with you and talk with you, maybe even an angel of the street. Thank you for letting me come. We're going to send you forth with the peace of God over you, the Holy Spirit around.